So we've all worked in and around the tech industry for many years. We're used to seeing these waves of development in the web. Some become major forces of transformation and others just fade away. As Web 3.0 gathers pace, a day doesn't go by without a raft of news stories and announcements. We wanted to dig into it properly with an expert to understand the potential and the opportunity for us as people and as brands. So in a change for the home team, as Ellie is on holiday, our UK Head of Strategy and Planning, Jesse Bland, is here. Hi, Louis. Thanks. And our very special guest for today is Zoe Skaman, the founder of Bodacious, a strategy studio that is fueled by audacious thinking that is right at the centre of new technologies that are driving the world of entertainment and fandom. Zoe is an early influencer in decoding the development of Web3 and associated technologies, as well as the impact and potential opportunities for the marketing and advertising industry. If you're interested in any of what you hear today, then Zoe is definitely worth a follow on Twitter. She's at Zoe Skaman, and from there you can get to her brilliant Substack as well. Zoe, did you want to add anything? Welcome. <laughs> and did you want to add anything before we dive in? Uh, thank you very much for having me. And no, I think that's a pretty good intro. So thank you very much. Fabulous. Jesse, do you want to kick off? Yeah. So um, it's great, great to meet you today, Zoe. We'd love just to, I guess, start with setting the scene, really, and kick off with what is Web3 and what does it mean for us today, do you think? So Web3, uh, the really easy way to think about it is that the web has happened in three iterations so far. So the first iteration was kind of Web1, and that was all about information links. So essentially that allowed us to navigate the web by typing something into a search engine such as Google. And this is when the sort of search engine started. So Yahoo, et cetera, e-spotting way back in the day. Um, and you could put your query in and it would link you to the right information that you needed based on you know, what your query was all about. So that was kind of Web1. Web two was all about social links. So it was about making sure that we could connect to one another. So that was the rise of social media. That was the rise of sort of the mobile internet um, and also the ability for us to sort of create content that would then kind of go out to other people and pull people into our, you know, kind of realms, I guess. And the third iteration, which is what we're calling Web three currently is economic links. So it's the ability for us to start to understand how we can track, buy, own, earn, sell digital items and digital content in such a way that we start to actually benefit from the value that we create on the internet. Fantastic. That's a great summary. I think the connections you make there between Web 1.0, Web 2.0 as well, really, really interesting. Do you think there's some similarities with what we're seeing with Web 3 at the moment to the reactions that we had with the kind of previous iterations of the internet as well? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think Web3 is not going to be a replacement at all. Every iteration that we've had is just an evolution of where we've already been. So it's almost like we're building in layers and Web3 is adding that economic layer and those economic links on top. I think, you know, whenever something new is introduced, we always freak out and we always have the naysayers who are just like trying to hark back to the halcyon days of how it used to be, uh, even though those halcyon days were not quite as rosy as they probably remember. And then you've got the people who are almost too evangelical in terms of where everything's going to go next. They're too utopian and they're not necessarily sort of taking into account the reality of capitalism and the reality of some bad actors and people wanting to make money. And where we'll end up is probably somewhere in between, which is where we always end up. So I think it's a, it's a mixture of caution and optimism, which I think we should always be approaching the future with. I mean, it's really interesting. And um, where, where do you sit on that scale, Zoe? I think I'm probably more optimist uh, then cynic, uh, cynical, I can't even talk at the moment, sorry. Um, but I think I'm definitely more optimist, but I am cautious. You know, I'm, I've definitely got that 
pragmatic mindset. I'm looking at it and understanding where the money is flowing. I'm looking at what the talent are up to. I understand that there are scams. It's a very unregulated market at the moment. So all of that stuff needs to be taken into account. But I also think that change of any kind also brings about, you know, exciting innovators and change also means that, you know, you've got new ideas coming to the fore, potentially new models as well. And I think those are absolutely worth evaluating as opposed to throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And um, it was quite interesting, before we started, we were talking about how big this subject area is. Mm. And so, so much of the conversation ends up around whether we end up with something that's very centralised, which Mm. is where the web's tended to go to date, versus a decentralised, you know, I think we're probably talking about metaverse here. What's your view on how that will start to play out? In terms of centralisation versus decentralisation? Yeah. I think, you know, to be totally honest, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, Again, we're not going to have socialism on the internet necessarily, and we're not going to have a fully capitalist society on the internet either. We're going to have pockets. And the whole point of the metaverse, and you know, if that thing ever ends up coming into being at any point, will probably at least be not for another 10 years or so, is that we're going to have different experiences that we can jump into. And it's going to be things like, uh, you know, Fortnite universes, which are going to be centralized experiences that are created from, you know, one company with serious quality control. And that's great because they're going to be wonderful things to navigate. And on the other end, you've also got the ability for people to come together to form, you know, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, and to decentralize their choices and the way that they fund capital and the way that they come up with ideas. And I think we're going to be able to have the ability to hop from those things to the other as opposed to everything centralised or everything decentralised. Again, those are two black and white in terms of their way of evaluating things. But do you think in the same way as the big tech platforms have have kind of uh, taken ownership of Web 2.0, that at some point there, and it'll be new players as well, their kind of uh, access to resources will just become too much and they'll get to make up the rules? Potentially. I mean, again, we really have no idea where this is going to end up. We are in the absolute baby step realm at the moment. Um, And there are massive players already. So there's OpenSea, there's Coinbase, Mm -hmm. you know, who are starting to become the big sort of centralized players for Web3. But at the same time, I think that the advent of technology such as blockchain means that people have more choice around, you know, actually saying we don't want to go to a centralised option, we want to be able to build for ourselves. But yeah, I think that there's definitely going to be a massive push and pull. And I think, as I said, we'll end up with big centralised players and we'll end up with decentralised options as well, but it's not going to be all or nothing. Yeah, fully. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting as well, talking about the kind of new wave of big tech as well. I heard that Roblox has been kind of pinned to this kind of new young tech giant in the space. Um, and it's really interesting to see as well, I know you talked about we're kind of 10 years off, Zoe, mm. Um, I know Gartner have come out and said that by 2026, they expect that each of us will spend on average an hour in the metaverse a day. Do you think that's um, kind of hyperbole? Do you think that's kind of too far off? Or do you think there's a reality where in four years time we'll be spending regular time um, in the metaverse? Well, in four years time, we won't have a metaverse. Uh, So that is not true. So the metaverse does not exist. Um, It probably will not exist, as I mentioned, for at least 10 years. What they probably mean is that we're going to be spending at least an hour within a virtual environment. But what that looks like is going to be fundamentally different for everybody. So for some people, that could be playing Fortnite um, or playing on Roblox. For other people, it could be donning an AR uh, you know, set of spectacles from Snap, which are probably going to be due to be released in the next two years or so. And, you know, going for a run and actually having a sort of augmented reality, playful experience from when you're running outside as well. So it's all going to be completely different things. So I think when people talk about the metaverse, 
they get very confused because they think that it's going to be some sort of everybody, you know, donning VR headsets and disconnecting from reality. But that is something that Hollywood has yeah. fed us. And it's something that I think, actually, I think we're going to skip a lot of virtual reality and go straight to, you know, basically virtual reality, which is actually mixed reality. So mixing into our sort of real locations and augmented reality, I think is going to be even bigger. Um, but yeah, I think that's why I'm, I'm just really funny about the use of that word because it's become a catch-all and a lot of people just don't understand what it really means. Yeah, we've seen that so often in tech. We saw it with big data. We've seen it with AI, an all-encompassing term to describe something that when it arrives becomes actually very, very normal. But I guess it's useful for people to be able to mm. um, start to make sense of what's happening, I guess. Yeah. Um, there seems to be, and, and when we talk about the detractors, and um, I love the kind of optimistic view you take on this because the voices around detraction are kind of loud and increasingly um, difficult. But some of the fears are well-founded. So um, impact on privacy and regulation and you know that the world's still trying to catch up with the regulation that probably needs to happen around the social media networks let alone this what's your view on on how that might play out i think we'll get regulation um as simple as that so there's already lots of conversations happening that have been happening for the last couple of months in congress um around kind of how we start to regulate cryptocurrencies about how we start to regulate you know privacy on the sort of on the blockchain as well um, that also is spreading across, you know, EMEA at the moment. It's spreading to, you know, countries like China. Obviously, China have shut down any other cryptocurrencies apart from their own, but that's their own kind of prerogative. Um, but yeah, I think it absolutely needs to be regulated. I think the difficulty is whenever we have legacy legislation makers wading into a new space such as this, they tend to over-legislate to the point that they actually snuff out innovation and they end up actually kind of slowing down all the potential that a platform uh, or a new technology has. So that's why we have to tread very carefully. And that's why there's been, you know, people from A16Z, from Coinbase, um, you know, all that kind of stuff actually heading to Congress to try and help them work through this stuff. Because what we don't want is we don't want everything to be labelled as a security. And then the entire thing gets shut down. All of the potential amazing changes that could happen as a result of this technology just don't happen. Or if they do happen, it takes 10 years longer than it should. And I think that's what we have to be careful of. But I absolutely think it needs to be regulated. It needs to be safer. And people need to have a little bit more uh, understanding and trust in terms of what these systems are. Yeah, that's. so do you think there's been a lot of lessons learned from what happened with Web2 then? No, not at all. Um, I think in many cases, we're still learning those lessons. I think a lot of people, again, the slightly more utopian evangelical types are thinking that Web3 is going to be some sort of panacea. And it's going to solve absolutely everything. You know, for example, it's going to solve inequality because we're all going to be pseudonymous and no one's going to know who's male and who's female and who's black or who's white. But that's not true because in order to actually enter into these spaces in the first place, in many environments, you actually need to buy in. So you need real world wealth in order to then help you yourself create Web3 wealth, for example. Um, when we think about, you know, the ability for people to jump on Web3 platforms and contribute to platforms like DAOs, that takes time. What if you're a service worker and your hours are all over the place? How do you find the time to be able to learn about Web3, let alone jump into some of these projects? So what we're doing is we're taking all of the issues of the real world and all of the issues of Web2 into Web3. And we are moving at pace. But actually what we need to do is we need to slow down a little bit and actually say, is this the right way to do this? And if we do have this opportunity to build something better, are we taking into account all of the different factors and all of the different levers so that we don't end up in the same mess that we've been in prior. But also, you know, with Web2, thinking back to when it first started, and I remember because I, I helped set up Australia's first social media agency back in 2008, 
you know, when Facebook and Twitter were taking off and people were saying, no one's ever going to advertise on Facebook because it's not brand safe. Um, and even though, you know, we had a kind of utopian view and the intent was never to, you know, completely fuck up democracy and cause global division and, you know, exploitative practices and business models. That was never what it was supposed to be about. But unfortunately, that's where we've ended up. So even with the best of intentions, we sometimes end up in really crappy places. And again, that's just something that we need to take into account when we're moving towards this kind of new iteration. Mm. I think that's so interesting. There's something, I don't know, Zoe, if you've heard of him, David Mattern talks a lot about um, in New World, Same Humans, and the mm. idea that all these iterations happen a technology, but actually a lot of our kind of human needs remain the same. And therefore, it's the same reason why, as you said, will kind of perpetuate a lot of the problems we have in real life in any of these kind of metaversal worlds. But also when it comes to um, the technologies like VR, for example, there's that kind of skeuomorphism as well, where we'll end up replicating things exactly as they are in the real world. So we'll have meeting rooms as they exist in the real world, exactly looking the same. And I think that's just so interesting, the idea that we're we're at risk of perpetuating some of those problems that we already have in terms of inequality as well and how that plays out. Do you think do you think there's anything that brands or any of the kind of tech companies can do to help I guess get ahead of some of those inequalities or those issues that might arise further down the line when it comes to those areas? Absolutely. But, you know, that's the million dollar question. And to be honest, if I could answer that perfectly, I'd be a lot wealthier than I am now. Um, But I think, you know, the biggest things for me are um, opening up opportunities around inclusivity. And that is scholarships, that is funding for education, um, that is making sure that people have got, you know, potentially universal basic income for a period of time to actually help them on board. So there's, there's lots and lots of stuff that we need to do. But, you know, universal basic income and education and funding are also things that we've struggled with for Web2, there are also things we struggled with in the kind of real society. So I'm not necessarily saying that that's going to be fixed for Web3. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, we need to educate people and we can't leave people behind. And that's why I think, you know, it's, it's so important to make sure that the money that is being generated at the moment, or at least a portion of the money that's being generated with Web3, which is enormous, is going towards onboarding young people or onboarding kind of marginalized communities to help them understand this space. And you know, LeBron James, the NBA player, for example, has done a partnership with Crypto.com, which is one of the you know, big crypto companies out there at the moment. And his deal with them is that they have to provide funding for education for black communities um, to be able to learn how to do smart contract coding, to be able to understand how to you know, actually trade within cryptocurrencies, how to set up MetaMask wallets, all of that kind of stuff. And then you've got World of Women, which is an NFT profile picture uh, project which, you know, exploded in January of this year. It's actually launched in July last year. Nothing really happened until January. And then celebrities started jumping on board. So Reese Witherspoon, Shonda Rhimes, etc. And that generated about $40 million in the space of two weeks. And a lot of that money is then being funneled back into education programs for women and also for women of colour to make sure that they're actually being pushed in the right direction. Because if we allow people to jump on the Web3 bandwagon, who already have the education, who already have the IRL wealth, then what we're going to end up with is even more crypto bros. And that's obviously going to push us in the wrong kind of direction. And at the moment, the gap is too wide in between, especially women, for example, who are investing in crypto versus men. And we need to try and address that balance faster. Otherwise, that gap is just going to get wider and wider. Yeah, but are the mechanisms in place to do that? Maybe maybe I'm too long in the tooth, but it just feels that it feels that regulation will come quicker because we've probably got our eyes open to it, having been caught out by Web2. Um, but uh, I, it just feels like we, we could get caught out again if there's already a gap. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I said, you know, the most important things are funding and education. And that is pretty much the only way um, that we're going to be able to get past this. And I think there's a lot of programs out there uh, who are starting to do that. There's a lot of NFT projects who are starting to realise the importance of onboarding more people. Because obviously, the more people in the marketplace or the more people in Web3, um, you know, the greater the overall potential, the greater the overall reach and the wealth. Whereas actually, if they close it off and just keep it for a small number of people, it's going to be a smaller pie for everybody else. Um, so it's incredibly important from an economic perspective to open it up, not necessarily just because it's the right thing to do. Do you think, as part of that, do you think there's an onus on, you talked about some of the celebrities there, an onus on creators, the big celebrities, to kind of pull their resources, pull their communities in order to kind of bring maybe some of that kind of force for good through? Uh, yes, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do it. Um, you know, lots and lots of celebrities and creators uh, love to say that those kind of things and then actually never follow through. Um, but also, you know, it's not necessarily everybody's responsibility if they don't want to get involved in that way. So it would be wonderful if they did. But I think the reality is going to be that very few of them actually do that. I also worry um, if we're leaving uh, the responsibility for something so fundamental up to uh, celebrities. We saw yesterday that kind of HMRC did their first fraud case mm. into false NFTs. And um, I would hope that we'll have a better foundation for all being responsible for this as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, but that, again, is going to come from regulation. So, you know, it goes back to pre-regulation for social media. We used to have celebrities hawking us goods and products and services without necessarily calling it out as an advertised product. And obviously now they have to put advertising in there or the help hashtag ad or something along those lines to make it very, very clear that this is something they're being sponsored to do. And that came from regulation. So the same thing is going to happen with this. Makes total sense. Um, so we talked a lot, obviously, about um, where we might be in 10 years, but it'd be great to hear from you, Zoe, where you think we are now. I know there's examples of kind of applications of, of Web3 already existing. Um, there's the kind of the Alfa Romeo example, I think, with the, the idea that you can have an NFT linked to your car to kind of prove um, that it's been serviced and everything's been worked out in the right way. We've seen Porsche kind of playing around with simulation digital twins. Mm. Where do you think we are now and where do you think the real applications are for this in both kind of the consumer world, but also the B2B world as well? The applications for NFTs or the applications for digital twins? Um, we'll start with NFTs, if that's OK. Um, I mean, how long is a piece of string? Um, it's, it's almost an impossible question to answer because I think what we're seeing at the moment is only the very small nascent use cases. And I think the potential is absolutely vast. It really just depends on people's experimentation. What we've seen so far, you know, on the whole has been basically shitty JPEG projects on 10,000 generative avatars and kind of questionable gift-based art. And that's not necessarily what an NFT is, but unfortunately that's the thing that's grabbed the headlines. It's been the easiest thing to create off the cuff. It's also been the thing that's gone a bit confusing in terms of, you know, speculation and trading and asset development. Um, and instead, I think, you know, the, the interesting use cases are going to be things like tracking product life cycles, uh, supply chain tracking and transparency, um, the ability to have, you know, membership cards where actually we're creating modern day co-ops that have the ability to kind of run and navigate things as a community, but also earn a share of the equity that they're creating. Um, I also think it's going to be things like, you know, access uh, ongoing or interesting experiences. I think that there's going to be loads of interesting things around NFTs being connected to real world events and have their metadata updated in real time, depending on what's happening in the real world. So a sports star's performance or, you know, a particular thing that's happening in the weather, for example, with kind of climate DAOs and those types of things. So I think it is absolutely massive in terms of what they are. There is no definitive use cases and there shouldn't be mm. because then that's just going to stunt our thinking. 
But do you think, um, as you said, then that at the moment there's kind of NFTs almost become synonymous with kind of digital art and therefore maybe some of the applications aren't as exciting or sexy as people think they might be, but actually are, as you said, going to be playing out in those more kind of um, kind of useful environments in the B2B environments um, with applications that, yeah, that are just a bit more simple, really. And people maybe are kind of getting caught up in the hype and the excitement around digital art. And that's actually kind of distracting people from the potential. I think there's still a lot of potential in, in digital art as well, but I think that is not what an NFT is. You know, an NFT is a smart contract. You know, it's a it's a data utility that points to a digital object or a digital sort of piece of content or something along those lines. And that can be whatever you want it to be. I think we have seen, you know, some very questionable, crappy art, which is then being overvalued and overhyped, which has then created that view of like, this is ridiculous, this is the Wild West, it's never going to work. And instead, actually, I personally think, you know, the supply chain stuff is the sexy stuff. I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, like John West Tuna has been using blockchain for ages to be able to actually track your can of tuna back to the boat and the fisherman that caught it in the first place. And so you can actually, you know, scan a QR code and you can figure out that, you know, Fred from Dorset, you know, caught your fish, for example. That's all based on blockchain that's been around for many, many years. And just that idea of kind of transparency um, is also going to start moving more towards sustainability. And obviously, we've got a rising tide of trends and interest in sustainable fashion, in sustainable product development, um, in kind of reusable products and all of that, you know, if that can be tracked on the blockchain as well, opens up brand new business models and business cases. This reminds me of when um, the Internet of Things came out and everyone mm. talked about connected cows and fridges for 15 years. And actually where the Internet of Things mm. uh, ended up first was in logistics, transport, healthcare, manufacturing, engineering, education, which are never the interesting, I think they're fascinating, but they're, they're never the interesting areas mm. um, for the media to follow because they need something that's uh, lowest common denominator that people can understand. I love the idea of use case of NFT in transport airline industry and mm. looking at the way in which um, aeroplanes are serviced, all that kind of stuff, which is going to undergo a huge transformation anyway. Are you seeing any other areas where you think it could be... Um, hugely interesting in terms of pushing those sectors forward? Um, I think probably the, the supply chain one is the most interesting. I think, you know, tracking as a set of product over time, like the Alfa Romeo example, uh, I think is going to be great. So it, it's all about kind of transparency, making sure that you understand where your product has come from. I think the sustainability aspect, as I mentioned, um, and then it's also just going to be around ownership as well. So, you know, what is an example of an NFT that you can actually augment as an owner so that when you pass it on to the next person or the next person buys it, you've been able to put your stamp on it in some way. So it's almost like a kind of ongoing chain letter, but it's a chain letter of added value or it's a chain letter of added narrative mm-hmm. weight or something along those lines. You know, what about NFTs that maybe age over time, that then we've got some element of sort of cultural, you know, duration in it or something along those lines. I think that could be really interesting. Or NFTs that you can edit in some way um, that make sure that you're sort of creating a, a roadmap or a model um, of what you have put your stamp on. And I think, you know, all of those use cases are just so up for grabs and we haven't even started to explore them yet. Yeah, I think the sustainability piece, as you said, is is very interesting. I think those spaces where they've always needed to kind of track kind of chain of custody and make sure and kind of prove that the materials are sourced where they're sourced from. Things like spaces like timber, for example. Um, I think it's really interesting. And probably a lot of those players have kind of got a bit of a, a kind of head start in that space because there's a real world application for it as well. And I think as consumers, yes, it's a kind of B2B application, but as consumers, we're increasingly interested about 
where things have come from trust in organizations um i think yeah just very interesting to see how that's going to kind of play in and kind of provide that extra transparency yeah i think it definitely will i think you know when it comes to fashion when it comes to makeup brands when it comes to where we're sourcing our food from i think knowing that and having that knowledge is going to be increasingly important when the reason why we're in this mess in the first place from a sustainability perspective is we've become so disconnected Mm. from understanding where everything comes from and how it's made and the energy cost of it. And I think we need to go through a sort of re-education program, but that can't be too heavy because a lot of people are just not going to have the motivation or the energy to go through that. So one of the easiest ways to do that is to find shortcuts to be able to feed people the information on the journey that their product has been on and then get them to make better decisions. And I think blockchain transparency and tracking is, is one of those things. So from from a kind of ESG perspective, this is going to be vital for being able to prove you're doing the right thing, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, it really depends on how we want to use blockchain. I mean, blockchain at the moment is not a perfect technology. It is buggy. It's expensive in itself. If you're using Ethereum at the moment, obviously, it's seriously environmentally concerning. Uh, The fork hopefully will happen um, in kind of June or July, which is going to move Ethereum onto proof of stake, which is 99.9% less energy, um, you know, basically sort of expending those energies. So I think that we need to fix a lot of that stuff and people might decide to use their own version of blockchains. They might decide to use, um, you know, other kind of databases to be able to do this. But at the moment, you know, it's kind of what we've got. Um, If those things are resolved and if the usability is improved, I think it could become a really important base layer foundation for the vast majority of businesses when it comes to that kind of side of things. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And and in terms of, um, I mean, it was super, obviously Super Bowl over the weekend and it was a really great, um, you know, the the annual creative fest uh, for brands. But it feels like we've talked a little bit about art um, and we've mentioned sport and music, which are kind of, we're really starting to see brands engage with this, get their ducks in a row, the stuff that Adidas and Nike have done around um, trademarking. Mm. If you were advising brands on this, where do you start in terms of starting to access these kind of tech? I mean, it's all completely different depending on the brand. You know, if you're a video game brand, it's going to be totally different from if you're an apparel brand versus if you're a food brand. I mean, there is no formula for this. Um, And I think that's what makes it so challenging, but also potentially so exciting as well. Anyone who tries to kind of put frameworks around this is going to fail instantly because there's just no there's no way to do that. Um, You know, I think if you're an apparel brand, then it's looking at, you know, what is the future of virtual fashion or what is the future of uh, pieces of apparel such as sneakers as asset classes? And how do you start to think about NFTs attached to those, for example? Uh, Obviously, StockX were doing that um, a couple of weeks ago when they basically said we're going to offer NFTs to anybody who buys our secondhand sneakers. We'll keep those sneakers for you as an asset and you can hold the NFT. And obviously, then Nike decided to sue them, quite rightly, because Mm -hmm. they were selling Nike-based NFTs without um, the credibility to be able to actually do so. So I think that's interesting. I think, obviously, Nike filed their crypto kicks patent a couple of years ago, and I think we're waiting to see what happens with that which is the ability for you to hold NFTs that are in relation to kind of virtual goods, but also physical goods, but also breed um, those different NFTs to create unique sneakers that then you could potentially get 3D printed in one of the Nike stores, which starts to make it really interesting. You know, if you're food-based, then you want to think about, you know, is it sustainability or is it potentially something along the lines of if you have an, an NFT, you buy your way into a small community, which allows you to feed in on future you know, product ideas or innovation ideas or packaging ideas, or you get invited to exclusive, you know, supper clubs or something along those lines. So there's so many different opportunities. You know, if you're a video game, 
you need to actually look at, you know, what are the current existing player behaviors? How do you then start to augment them in the right kind of way? And then that means that when you introduce NFTs, it feels like a natural extension of existing gameplay as opposed to just NFTs for NFTs sake. So it is, it is vastly different depending on the category that you're in. Yeah, it feels a little bit like, um, I guess, in the ESG space, talk about materiality a lot and the fact that when when it comes to sustainability or DNI, you should always um, be doing something that's material to the business. And I think it feels like that's a kind of similar, I guess, a similar thought you're having here, which is um, if you're a fashion brand, play into the status and what that can do there. If you're a sports brand, you've got a lot of kind of fandom and community, kind of do things that are material to the sector you're mm-hmm. in and the people that you are communicating with. A hundred percent. And I think that's that's how it's got to be. And I think people who have just been wedging NFT collections in left, right and centre. I mean, you can see it a mile off and it just looks awful. I think, you know, McDonald's doing their McRib NFT was just bizarre. Um, you know, Pepsi releasing microphone heads wearing wigs with no reason. Uh, and that was bizarre. Applebee's, you know, that was ridiculously badly done. So they, they uh, hired a NFT creator to create a kind of futuristic looking burger. I think that's what it was. And then the idea was they wanted to try and auction it to the highest bidder within a 24-hour window. And then they would get uh, basically a year's worth of food at Applebee's, but they messed up the auction and they accidentally sold it to the first bidder. So they sold a year's worth of Applebee foods for $25 to the first person that bought it. Um, And then they'd already sold it by the time they tweeted that it was starting. So the whole thing was just a complete disaster. So essentially bad marketing is still bad marketing regardless of what part of the web you're working on. (laughs) Totally, but it's just also, you know, looking at Applebee's and looking at their audience is like, do they know about NFTs? Do they give a shit about NFTs or are you just doing it for the sake of it? And I think that's what's been happening over the last kind of 12 months or so is the vast majority of people just jumping on it as a sort of PR bandwagon, creating absolutely dreadful things with no real thought Mm. and no real strategy behind them. Uh, and it shows. And I think hopefully that stuff is behind us now and people have kind of realised the hype train has crashed into a wall. Um, and maybe they're going to start thinking about it a bit more strategically. I hear where you're coming from in, in terms of the use cases are very different depending on which sector you're looking for. But what about that culture of experimentation and being able to make mistakes? And I know they've got to be calculated, but um, when you're talking to clients, what's your advice there around how do you set a culture up I mean, Nike and Adidas, as examples, I doubt they have to worry too much about this, that allows that kind of experimentation with new technology for the purposes of marketing. I mean, Nike and Adidas are two of the most bureaucratic companies you'll ever come across. Um, So, you know, the culture of experimentation that you see is basically the stuff that's lucky enough to sneak through the cracks and come out into the mainstream. Um, (laughs) And that's the same in every gigantic business, though, because you've got a huge amount of people, you've got lots of departments, you've got lots of people who are stakeholders who can say yes, who can say no, your egos, you know, it's, it's going to be everywhere you go. I think it needs to always come back to, is there a solid business case of being able to do this? And if you can build a business case and you can actually talk about the fact that you're going to put money against, you know, a pilot that is going to potentially prove or disprove a really important hypothesis that then is going to help you go to your next business case and your next one and kind of scale from there, then it starts to make sense. If it's throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks, that's obviously not going to fly and it shouldn't. Um, that's how you end up with, you know, in terrible PR ideas out there in the real world. But I think it is really about making sure that you are grounding it in business knowledge um, and actually kind of upskilling the entire business by kind of sharing out learnings, which I think is a really important thing to do. Um, and that you're not experimenting just for the hell of it and just being stupid, but you're actually doing it with some sort of rhyme and reason behind it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think um, in terms of, I guess, thinking about how then creators or agencies can work with brands and kind of set themselves up in this arena, do you think, I guess, 
as you said, the kind of starts of the business case. Do you think this is there's a danger of those kind of agencies and brands coming in and thinking about it too much as a kind of marketing tactic? And is it actually more a kind of business kind of part of business strategy? I'd love to get your opinion on that. Absolutely. I think that's 100% the case. Um, you know, I'm seeing, I don't know if you're seeing it as well, but so many people overnight on LinkedIn have become, you know, metaverse CMOs and NFT experts and all that. It was utter bollocks. It's been around for about five minutes. There is no experts or CMOs in this space at all. Um, again, it's just, it's another lever, um, which we still have a huge amount of learning to do. We are, again, very, very early on. Um, and we need to make sure that we're always going back to our skill sets, which are, you know, hopefully strategy, business, marketing, all of that kind of stuff. All of the pictures that I've seen so far from agencies have basically pictured this as some sort of shiny PR object in a very similar way, you know, to how sort of social media was. Everybody, every brand must have a Facebook page, you know, and prior to that, the app store, every brand must have its own app. And then obviously that stuff all popped out. The vast majority of it died because it just wasn't relevant. And it was people copying a playbook. And it's exactly the same thing with NFTs. You know, you drop a collection of NFTs that have no rhyme or reason. You set up a Discord, which is basically build it and they will come, I guess. Um, and nobody knows what the hell's going on. And then the whole thing is like, oh, shit, I guess we've got to keep this going. Should we keep this going? Oh, this is terrible. Maybe we need a community <laughs> manager. We should have planned this out prior. And they're just not thinking about it. But this involves money. And this involves, you know, making sure that you are working in a responsible way in a market that is full of bots, is full of scams. What are you creating that's got any kind of long-term value? Why would people part with hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for a digital item? What is that actually going to get them? And I think you just have to approach it responsibly because there's also a much bigger potential of backlash and negative PR and crappy customer experiences. You know, what if you were responsible for a teenager losing thousands and thousands of pounds? You know, that kind of stuff, you have to be incredibly careful. And so I think that it needs to be really focused on, as you said, the kind of more business strategy side of things. How is this going to change our business model? How could it change our business model? How is it changing governance models when it comes to product innovation, feedback loops with our communities and our audiences? How are we creating long-term value? What could this do to our current loyalty program if we have one? Or could we create one off the back of this? Um, you know, how are we making sure that we're actually sort of pulling in customers throughout the entire product life cycle. So we're not just focusing on the sort of lipstick on a pig awareness stuff, but actually the end of the funnel yeah. and sort of post the funnel. And what are we doing there? And, you know, for so many years, we've all been drinking the Kool-Aid of Byron Sharp, being told that loyalty is a completely pointless task and we shouldn't be doing any of that kind of stuff. And, you know, to be fair to him, he's done a huge amount of research over decades, which is incredibly valuable. But to then just basically say loyalty is pointless, and especially in the way that things are moving at the moment with the rise of community, nicheification, fandom, all of that kind of stuff, I think we need to reassess that. And I think we need to start understanding that that's going to become a core part of business as we move forward. Mm -hmm. But it can be, you know, a value add. It doesn't need to necessarily be a cost center. How do we turn loyalty and a marketing department into a revenue generating machine? Is that possible? So I think all of that stuff is up for grabs. But yeah, the stuff that I've seen so far has just been, you know, crappy PR things. That's, yeah, I mean, that's fascinating, that, especially when you talk about community, we'll come on to that probably in a second. I think it sounds like from, from your perspective, Zoe, that the best thing that uh, an agency can do in these instances is actually be the kind of critical thinker and the mm. trusted advisor to, to clients and to brands and say, and kind of question, kind of briefs around this space, why we're doing it, is it material to the business? And I guess be that sounding board and that kind of critical thing, as I said, to to help kind of field some of those things so that they they are purposeful and they do drive value. Absolutely. And also say no. You know, it's totally okay to say no to a client. And I've I've had so many clients coming to me 
running around like headless chickens because their CMO has said, NFTs, we've got to do an NFT. And my initial reaction is rather than kind of going, okay, let's do it. I'm always going, why? Why have you got to do that? There is no rush. Uh, rushing is actually going to end up, you know, getting you into a worse position if you're in this space specifically. And I think, you know, we are in the baby steps. We don't know how this is going to roll out. This is like being in the first two weeks of social media, you know, when Twitter first came out and people were kind of trying to wrap their heads around it. There is no need to run headlong into a space that you don't understand, mess it up, create a crappy experience that teaches you nothing as a business, potentially gets you negative PR. And then where are you? You're nowhere in terms of, you know, you're learning, you're scaling your business case, your potential. So I think, you know, we really do need to slow down and we need to evaluate and we need to look at what are we doing within the business that could be augmented by this or what kind of pilots do we want to test? And then we can go from there. Yeah, I love the idea that kind of, yeah, bringing that kind of test and learn back into those new tech. Um, mm. You talked about community a little bit. I'm I'm kind of personally fascinated by, I guess, who owns the future of community because we think about, Historically, obviously, we've seen kind of brands have these kind of these those big brands that have been legacy brands that have lasted for years and years and years and people have always loved them. We've now seen obviously the rise of the creator community who arguably have much more um, loyal fans, loyal members, people that follow them. As we move into Web3, who do you think is going to kind of win out in that space? Is it going to be the brands? Is it going to be the creators? Again, is it a bit of a hybrid between those? Mm. Uh, in what? Sorry, in what way? I guess in terms of if we talk about community being really critical as we move into this kind of the new phase of the internet and having an audience and having people that you, you talked about kind of loyalty and having people that are loyal to you, I guess my question is who who is best placed to um, own and garner that loyalty in the future? Mm. Do you think it's possible for brands to do that in a kind of authentic way or is that going to really belong to the creators and the kind of individuals versus the kind of, um, yeah, the kind of faceless brands? Again, I think it's the role that community is going to play for your brand. And I think you really have to think that through. It's not just about, you know, creating a space for community and then hoping people rock up. You really need to have a clear view of what is the role of community in our specific brand. Is it about product innovation feedback loops where we actually are going to properly listen to some of our community members who we think are going to be really important to us on advising the future of packaging, the future of the scents we're using in our fragrances or the colours that we're using in our makeup or the skin tones we create for our foundations or those kind of things. Um, is it that you want to create a community that has an interest adjacent to your brand? So there's a clothing brand, for example, in the US called Hot Topic. They've created a Discord channel all about anime. Anime has absolutely nothing to do with what they sell on a regular basis. But the reason that they've done that is because they've realised that there is an adjacent interest area that is very embedded in their existing community and fandom. And they want to try and nurture that to then see if there might be crossovers that they can get from the anime world into the fashion world and back again, which is really smart. You know, there's other brands like there's Modern Fertility, for example, that has a private Slack channel. And that has become a safe space for women to gather who are struggling with fertility problems. And in doing so, they can have, you know, sensitive conversations with them, but also say, how can we as a brand help you? What kind of services and products can we build out that's going to make your life easier or that's going to connect you to other people in the way that you think is more valuable? So that's another way of doing it. Then you've got, you know, sort of super fans. So, for example, you've got, you know, the, the apps that Nike has created and also that Adidas have created as well that basically cater to the people that they think are both influential, but also high spenders, uh, which they may then start to kind of nut down into geographical areas. So may, basically, maybe there's an app just for LA influencers, or there's an app just for New York influencers, or something along those lines, and they get special access into Nike Innovation stores or something along those lines. 
So it's all completely different again, based on what is the role of cultivating a community. Do you want everybody to have access to that community? Or do you want to close it off and you handpick the people in the cohort that are going to be a part of that? Do you maybe have community seasons where they come on for a project that has got a fixed duration and then you disband afterwards and then you go and find another one if you want to think about it that way? So again, it's just thinking strategically, what is the point of doing this as opposed to opening up a community space, whether that be white labeled, you know, or in a social platform or in a discord or something like that, and just kind of going, oh yeah, let's just get people to like our page or to follow us or to join our server. For what? You know, that's, that's going to fall flat on its face. And actually Gucci have found that recently. So Gucci launched their Discord um, when they did their drop with Superplastic, which was called Super Gucci, their NFT drop. And so many people were just kind of in their Discord really, really quickly because it sounds exciting. And they had no community manager. They had no strategy. And people were actually in there going, what are we waiting for? What are we doing here? Are we just supposed to sit here until they maybe say something? And people were just kicking off because, you know, they don't want to spend their finite time and energy joining a Discord server that has no purpose. Yeah, minefield. Zoe, I think we could have talked about this all day. That is probably <laughs> the, the quickest um, the quickest run through Web3 that you could possibly do. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Is there anything we've missed? <laughs> um, probably loads. I mean, there's there's so many things in this space. It's, it's so massive. And that's what I think people really need to understand is when you talk about Web3 and when you talk about the metaverse, those are really overly simplistic wrappers and they are just concepts. They're just names for concepts, but those concepts don't really exist. It's all of the different bits and pieces and the fragmented technologies and behaviours underneath those that are worth diving into. But it's also really time consuming and it's really complex. Um, but I would just encourage people to kind of dive in and, and get interested and keep your minds open. Oh, yeah. I think that's the best advice. I think for me, I've heard from you, which is slow down. Don't let the first principles of doing the right thing for your business, understanding your audience um, and working out what they want to hear from you, as you always have, um, whilst yeah. dipping your toe into something that could be potentially exciting and bring huge opportunity. But if we slow down enough, then maybe we'll regulation can catch up in the right way and it will be safe for everyone to use and equitable at, at the same time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the industry that we're in, we are very guilty of running after the next shiny object. And I think that is wonderful because that means we keep our eyes open and we're, you know, constantly curious and we're always experimenting. But as you said, we need to ground it in core principles and we can't just do it for the sake of doing it. It still needs to work for our brand and our business. Amazing. Well, I think that feels like a good place to end it there. So thank you so much for your time this morning, Zoe. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Zoe.